Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. All right. Hello. Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Thursday Research Seminar. I'm Sarah Wald, and along with Hannah Riley Bowles, I'm co-teaching this um, semester seminar on uh, gender and public policy promoting equality in the workplace. And in connection with that, we have a theme for these Thursday research seminars this semester, which is roughly dealing with equality in the workplace and all the different forms of of, um, discrimination along lines of gender and intersectionality and interventions that deal with that. We are extremely lucky today to have Trina Jones with us. She is a, let me get her um, endowed chair, her her chair title. She's the Jerome M. Culp Professor of Law at Duke Law School, and she has braved the weather. She was stuck at Logan this morning, and it's braved the weather to be with us. She's going to be talking on, on global colorism. This is one of her areas of expertise. She focuses her research on writing on racial and socioeconomic inequality. She has written a book, Shades of Brown, The Law of Skin Color. She's written on uh, aggressive encounters and white fragility, deconstructing the trope of the angry black woman. She's written a post-racial, a post-race equal protection um, with uh, colleagues. And her current work is um, looking at a comparative perspective considering the interplay between DNA-based ancestry tests and racial identity. Um, so lots of interesting issues for questions. Before she joined the Academy, she was a litigator at Wilmer Cutler in Pickering, now Wilmer Hale, um, for five years. She was on the faculty of the University of California, Irvine, where she created and directed the Center on Law, Equality, and Race. And then she moved to Duke, and we are super lucky to have her here today. I'd like to welcome WAP's podcast community. This is being podcast, and so we're very happy that we're able to expand the reach of um, Professor Jones's expertise. And we ask that you turn off your cell phones. We will have a question and answer period, and we ask in the traditional Kennedy School style that a good question at the Kennedy School is relevant to the topic and ends with a question mark. Um, I want to thank Sarah and Sarah Wald and uh, Hannah Ryan Bowles for inviting me here, and Ruth Reeves for her extraordinary, extraordinary um, organizational efforts. Um, getting here this morning was not uh, easy, so thank you, Ruth, for bearing with me. So, what I want to do this project is a cross cultural examination of colorism with the purpose of identifying similarities and differences in different cultural spaces. I also want to examine uh, the effects of color hierarchies on individuals living in those spaces and to identify effective interventions. I'm trained as a lawyer, we're always looking for interventions. 
I am not an empirical scholar and therefore not trying to prove causal relationships. So that's one caveat to uh, this project and this presentation. But I am trying to tease out broad themes uh, in areas where we need to delve uh, more deeply, which is what I do uh, generally in my scholarship. So in the US uh, Legal Academy, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw has critiqued uh, the tendency to treat race and gender as mutually exclusive categories of experience and analysis. She notes that the separation of race and gender puts our focus on privileged individuals within these categories. In other words, in race discrimination cases, discrimination tends to be viewed in terms of sex or class privileged blacks, black men. In sex discrimination cases, the focus is on race and class privileged women, white women. She notes that this focus on otherwise privileged group members creates a distorted analysis of racism and sexism because the operative conceptions of race and sex become grounded in experiences that actually represent only a subset of a much more complex phenomenon. So Crenshaw's intersectionality insight is that race and gender are always interconnected and never exist as separately distinct, disaggregated identities. My good friend, Professor Angela Harris, has added to the analysis by pointing out that there is nothing essential about gender that causes all women to share the same experience of sexism, and there is nothing essential about race that causes all people of color to share the same experience of racism. There is no monolithic or universal women's experience, just as there's no monolithic or universal black experience, Latinx experience, or Asian experience. Gender is always mediated by race, and race is always mediated by gender. In my short time, what I want to talk about are the ways in which race and gender are mediated by color. That is, the ways in which individuals are differently situated based upon skin color. So what I'd like to do is to first talk about what colorism is, and then two, look at the meanings ascribed to skin color within the African American community uh, and within Asian and Asian American communities, uh, and then more broadly in other global spaces. Uh, and then I'd like to talk about, I think that may be myself, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the implications uh, of uh, this analysis. Um, that's never happened before. Um, I'll just ignore it. We'll just pretend that that did Hopefully happen. they won't call back. <laughs> yeah, so what is colorism? In April 2017, in an Instagram post directed to dark-skinned black women, Rashidi Queeley, who is a pan-Africanist, wrote, your African features are all you need for attractiveness. Never tell yourself or let anyone tell you that in order to be attractive, you must be mixed. This sparked quite a bit of conversation, including a response from former NBA player Gilbert Arenas, who said, well, when you say African features black, then you have, number one, Lupita Nyong'o, and she's cute when the lights are off. In disparaging Nyong'o in this way, Arenas was not attacking her race. He dismissed her based on skin color. The process of distinguishing among individuals, often of the same race, based upon the relative lightness or darkness of their skin tone, is called colorism. It's 
So let's focus for a moment on skin color and African Americans. And I'd like to tease out the relationship between skin color and race first and then talk about skin color itself. So in the United States, the principle of hypodescent, also known as the one drop rule, and I tried to find a visual that wouldn't be overly offensive uh, to convey this, but I don't know that I was successful in doing so, uh, has played a dominant role in racial classification schemes, especially with regards to African Americans. One drop of black blood or black ancestry has historically meant that you were categorized as black. But because in early US history, bloodlines could not be established with certainty due to unreliable or non-existent genealogical records, other markers were used to assign race, including hair texture, whether it was curly or straight, facial features, the broadness of the nose, the fullness of the lips, and skin color. Among these, skin color played and continues to play a critically important role in racial assignment and racial classification. I know someone is smiling. I love this picture of Toni Morrison. I just think she's uh, amazing. Uh, but in any event, hair texture, skin tone, facial features uh, play a key role as indicators of race. We use these uh, physical metrics to assign people to uh, a racial classification. The darker you are, the more likely you are to be categorized as black. Uh, the lighter you are, the more likely you are to be categorized uh, as uh, white. As the Lupita Nyong'o uh, example demonstrates, however, matters are a bit more complicated because skin color has been used not only to assign people to a racial classification, it's been used as a basis to distinguish among individuals within the same uh, racial classification. So for example, some people may find African Americans with Beyonce's skin tone uh, to be uh, more desirable or more acceptable uh, than an African American woman whose skin tone is more like India Ari's. And by the way, it took more than a moment uh, to find a pop singer or popular singer, I don't know that India Ari would like that categorization, uh, <laughs> had a darker skin tone, right? Uh, and so that, uh, causes us to ask some questions about what's going on right, uh, in the music uh, industry. Importantly, colorism is practiced not only by African Americans and communities of color, but by persons of other races. Thus, while skin color may influence how some African Americans choose their intimate partners, their political leaders, and employees, it may similarly affect other groups. So for example, a white-owned production company may choose to cast a lighter African-American actress in a romantic lead in a TV drama. Or a marketing firm may prefer, prefer to use a lighter-toned or biracial actress in print ads uh, or uh, commercials. Or to lighten the skin tone of those um, celebrities that they do use. Now this is a L'Oreal um, advertisement on the far, my far left. Uh, 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 for hair, using Beyonce, uh, know the skin tone difference. L'Oreal said that they did not intentionally lighten her skin. Um, we'll talk about L'Oreal a little later and query whether or not you believe uh, their response. 
uh, and this is Vanity Fair's cover uh, 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 shot of uh, Lupita Nyong'o uh, when she was being considered for an Academy Award. Uh, and again, note the difference uh, in skin tone here. Uh, and these are not entities that are uh, governed by people of color uh, for the most part. Um, so you see uh, that colorism operates uh, among other uh, groups and not just within communities uh, of color. Another example, Barack Obama. Remember when Barack was considering the presidency in 2007 and people were considering uh, whether or not he was a viable candidate? Well, Joe Biden has some things to say about that. He said that Barack Obama was a promising candidate for the presidency because in Biden's words, I mean, you got the first mainstream African-American who is articulate and bright and clean and a nice looking guy. I mean, that's a storybook man. Um, and then you have uh, Senator Harry Reid's observation that the U.S. was ready to embrace a black presidential candidate, especially Obama, who was a light-skinned African-American with no Negro dialect unless he wanted to have one. Think about the work that skin color is doing here, right? So given the critical role of skin color in racial classification in the United States, it's not surprising that the color hierarchy here uh, mimics or generally tracks the racial hierarchy. The lighter one is, the more desirable one is deemed to be. Conversely, the darker one is, uh, the more negative are the stereotypes and biases assigned to one's person. Of course, this is context specific. There are cases where persons with lighter skin tones are disadvantaged when they're required to prove themselves or to uh, authenticate that they are a legitimate, authentic member uh, of a racial group. But for the most part, lightness is preferred. Lightness is associated with intelligence, honesty, industry, and beauty, while darkness is associated with laziness, immorality, criminality, and ignorance. As my mom always reminds me, this can be immortalized, summarized in uh, a song by Big Bill Bronzy from the 1930s, uh, who said, if he was white, you should be all right. If he was brown, stick around. But as he's black, mm, brother, get back, get back, get back. So the associations between uh, skin color uh, in the United States uh, and race are obvious, right, uh, given that we live in a highly racialized uh, context. But skin color also operates in another fashion. It operates as an indicator of socioeconomic uh, status. And there is growing empirical data uh, to suggest that the lighter toned you are, the lighter your skin tone, uh, the more likely you are to be better educated, to have better employment, and to have higher earnings, especially among black uh, men, uh, than darker toned uh, African Americans. And this association goes back at least to the period of slavery when slave, white slave owners engaged in sexual acts with black enslaved women, uh, sometimes voluntarily, often with force, uh, producing lighter tone offspring. Some, but not all of these individuals, were afforded better uh, opportunities, including manumission, uh, educational opportunities, and inheritance uh, rights. In addition to being associated with socioeconomic class, uh, skin color is also associated with um, values that were assigned to skin color that may predate uh, the development of racialized justifications uh, for slavery. As Franz Fanon and others have observed, in many Western cultures, whiteness or fairness 
is associated with purity and innocence, and blackness is associated with dirt, evil, and death. These traditions and cultural understandings cross the Atlantic with European uh, colonists, and they continue to flourish uh, in the imagery to which we're all exposed uh, early in life. So until recently, in the United States, most childhood heroes and princesses were white. Indeed, color imagery is so widely encoded in our cultural references and in our language that we are sometimes unaware that it exists. Think about the words we use, blackball, and the connotations with these words. Blacklist, black mood, black market, black male, and contrast that with white night, white as snow. Jesus is portrayed as being white, even though he was Jewish. Um, so, understanding uh, the values that are, that are ascribed to skin color will increase our understanding of the cultural context in which we live. In the United States, it may help us to understand uh, why. There's a little why the um, skin tone of the famous black pop music superstar uh, lightened dramatically uh, over time, why President George Bush used a dark-skinned black male, Willie Horton, uh, in criminal ad uh, TV ads uh, designed to challenge his opponent's toughness on crime, why uh, Time Magazine darkened its cover photo of O.J. Simpson uh, during his criminal trial, why, since 19, uh, 1865, a disproportionate number of black elected officials in Congress have been light-skinned. I have Cory Booker up here um, as a visual, but I'm not quite sure where that visual is. We'll just roll with this. Um, and why the sale of skin bleaching products has historically been a multi-million dollar uh, industry within the United States. It may also help us to understand, this is not supposed to be the next slide, but Cheers to more light skin kids. I don't know how many of you saw this circulating on Facebook over the last several weeks. Uh, this is a video uh, that was posted on Instagram by the fiance, I believe now the wife of a San Diego Charger uh, football player. Um, and they're toasting. He's seated at the table. Uh, with his child, uh, biracial child in his arm. Let's see the image of the child here. Uh, and they're toasting to more light-skinned kids. Um, and this uh, uh, created some uh, discussion right, uh, about uh, colorism uh, and racial preferences of black men, uh, among other things. I'm sorry, Trina, can you clarify, what is his wife, current wife, or fiance, white? His uh, wife? Uh, I think they're married now, but uh, at the time that this was done, she was his fiance. It's white. Uh, he is a darker tone. I'm sorry the image isn't as clear as I'd like it to be, but he's a darker tone um, African American man. You see him here. Um, and their child is biracial. Uh, and seated around this table um, are a number of other professional athletes and their white or lighter tone uh, girlfriends. Now, he said that they were just uh, making a joke, right? Um, but they cheered to more light-skinned children, right? Uh, and that generates a question of, well, why are these lighter-skinned children 
heard, right, uh, and what's going on here. Uh, maybe some racial preferencing, but also skin color is doing some work here uh, for the reasons that I've stated. <clears throat> so when I first began uh, studying colorism, I was familiar with this operation within the African-American uh, community. I did not know of its global significance, particularly in Asian and Asian-American communities. This was first brought home to me uh, when I was traveling in uh, Asia about 20 years ago, and I landed in uh, Vietnam. And every instant, it was the summertime, so if you've ever been to Vietnam in the summer, you know how hot uh, it can be. So every instinct in my body it was to take off clothing. But what I noticed were, was that women were actually uh, covering uh, their arms, their hands, their faces in the middle of the summer in the sweltering uh, heat. And me being curious, I started asking questions. Why is this happening, right? Uh, why are people covering? And what I found out was that skin color uh, is a marker of class uh, in Asian uh, communities. Um, dark skin marks one as a laborer who toils uh, in the fields as opposed to one who lives a more sheltered and privileged existence indoors. Sociologist Evelyn O'Connell-Blynn reports that Japan has long idolized ivory skin that is like a boiled egg, soft, white, and smooth on the surface, I'm quoting Lynn. Uh, she suggested this preference has historical roots dating at least to the mid-19th century when upper-class Japanese men and women donned white lead powder makeup to indicate their elite status. In addition to acting as a marker of class status, skin color also functions as an indicator of physical attractiveness and beauty within Asian and Asian American communities. And this relationship between skin color and physical attractiveness is well documented. Indeed, in their investigations of skin tone discrimination among Asian communities, Joanne Rondia and Paul Spicker observed that, quote, long-standing preferences for light skin exist in all Asian countries. They note that in almost every country in Asia, the celebrity class, and especially movie stars, are noticeably lighter and taller with more angular features than the general population. Ellen Nakano-Glenn has observed that the symbolic value of light skin is especially critical for women. And so this explained the sort of gendered nature of what I was seeing um, in uh, Vietnam and elsewhere uh, in Asia. She says that men, so men who are not physically prepossessing but who have wealth, education, and other forms of human capital may be considered good catches, <clears throat> whereas women <clears throat> who are physically attractive may also be considered desirable, despite the lack of other forms of capital. Although skin tone is usually seen as a form of fixed or unchangeable capital, in fact, men and women may attempt to acquire light skin privilege, and they do so generally by buying cosmetics and other treatments uh, that will lighten uh, the skin. Indeed, the value of lighter skin is so high that the manufacturer products offering the prospect of lighter, brighter, whiter skin has become a multi-billion dollar global industry and Asia is a principal market. The uh, industry was estimated to be valued at $10 billion in 2010 and it's estimated to reach $23 billion uh, by 2020. The key players uh, in Asia are China, Japan, and India. 
and indeed South Asian women, many of whom you uh, lightness is a valuable asset on the marriage market, are buying skin um, lightening products um, by uh, the millions. There was a 2009 uh, poll uh, by an online dating site in India uh, that uh, polled 12,000 users. It's called shoddy.com, and they found that skin tone was the most important criteria in three northern Indian states uh, in selecting uh, a mate. Unilever, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, I've never quite figured it out. Uh, the maker of Hans and Bear and Lovely uh, is one of the largest producers uh, of um, skin lightening, which they're known as euphemistically, or skin whitening uh, products. This is just an image from uh, a street uh, in uh, India. And they're followed by uh, L'Oreal and uh, Shiseido. By the way, most of these products are targeted at women. And let me see if I have a few ads here to show you. Um, Fair and lovely. Note, as she turns her head to look more directly at you, her skin tone uh, is shifting. Um, here's another product by L'Oreal. Uh, by the way, L'Oreal was the entity uh, that denied brightening um, uh, uh, Beyonce's skin. Query whether or not their denial is in fact correct, given they are selling these products uh, throughout the world. Um, okay, so L'Oreal, white perfect, right? Um, the name uh, carries so many uh, connotations, and it's, 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 it's just shocking. Uh, and here's another L'Oreal uh, white perfect um, uh, ad that is directed uh, at um, the Indian market and the Sri Lankan uh, market. So I wanted to pause for a moment and talk about gender, because historically, uh, these products were designed for uh, women. But now, increasingly, these manufacturers are targeting uh, men. Uh, and indeed, there is um, a product now called Fair and Handsome. Uh, that is directed uh, towards uh, South Asian uh, men. And Vaseline recently uh, adopted a map that was quite controversial um, for directed towards men to try to get men to buy their uh, skin whitening products. Uh, and this app will allow you to whiten uh, or lighten your skin tone uh, on Facebook. And the, um, I should have put an ad up, uh, but it says uh, in the ad, there's a man, one side of his face is dark, the other side is light, and it says transform your face on Facebook. Um, so increasingly, uh, these products are being targeted uh, at the male population. The demand for these products continues, uh, despite the fact that many contain dangerous substances like mercury, hydroquinone, and corticosteroids, which may cause not only damage to the skin, but damage to other uh, organs, right? So these are incredibly toxic uh, products in some parts of the world, uh, including these uh, toxic uh, chemicals that are actually banned uh, in places like the United States uh, and Europe uh, with regards to um, cosmetic um, creams and such, but yet they're shipped to other parts of, 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 of the globe um, without uh, any regulation. So importantly, Asian women who use skin lighteners are not necessarily trying to become white or European. In her examination of skin color among Filipino women, uh, Joanne, Joanne Rondia found that many Filipino women are satisfied with having Asian uh, features. She knows they like being Asian because, quote, it gives them a distinct and unique identity. They wouldn't trade in their dark hair or almond-shaped eyes for blonde hair and blue eyes. 
Instead, they're looking to clean up or become better versions of themselves. Thus, ads for skin lightening products in the Philippines feature Asian women with glowing white skin, jet black hair, and delicate almond-shaped eyes. Per Rondia, the message being sent is, quote, it's okay to be Asian as long as you're the right kind of Asian. Specifically, you must be light, have big eyes, and a body that is at least 20 pounds lighter than uh, average. And I should pause here and point out that skin color uh, and skin color preferences work in consort with other uh, factors, right? Uh, the shape of the eyes, uh, the, sh uh, the shape of the nose, right? Body weight. Uh, and there are all sorts of cosmetic procedures uh, that are being um, marketed to women uh, to adjust other uh, factors uh, as well. So I've been talking about colorism within the African-American community, uh, within uh, Asia and Asian-American uh, communities really broadly. Um, but I want to point out that colorism exists uh, more globally, uh, more broadly than that. On the African continent, WHO, uh, the Health, uh, World Health Organization, uh, has recently found that 77% of women in Nigeria use skin lightening products. In Nairobi, Kenya, uh, the city has become known as a, a toxic, uh, a haven for toxic skin lightening treatments. Uh, there is an area called River Road uh, where backstreet clinics and vendors are offering skin bleaching injections uh, containing unregulated sub, uh, materials. Uh, and the idea is that an injection is going to be faster and have more um, effective results uh, than a cream um, would have. These products are often touted uh, by celebrities. In January 2014, uh, Cameroonian pop star Denisha spoke openly about her own skin whitening treatments and launched a brand of cream called White Denicious, uh, which sold out within 24 hours. The Kenyan equivalent, I you uh, heard the Kenyan equivalent of Kim Kardashian, Vera Sadika, sparked a national debate uh, a couple of years ago when she talked about spending the equivalent of 170,000 US dollars uh, on skin whitening uh, during an interview. I think I have this. One of those biggest investments, I believe, is. You, you had some skin lightening done. Oh yeah, you said it right. Because you know what? When you say it, bleaching is for River Road. Okay. So what you've done is called skin lightening, yes, not bleaching. No, it's not Why do you have your skin lightening? Because my hair is my business, my body is my business. Nobody else will do this with mine. And I feel like, it's not like I didn't get deals before, but um, I feel like I need a change and the change is working out for me because right now I have like 10 bookings. I have a booking in South Africa for, you know, I have to make an appearance, I have to club host. I had a booking last night, I had to club host. I have another one in Mombasa. Like, you know, I think change is good if you do it the right way. And listen, I'm not encouraging anyone to do it because it's not the right thing to do it, but I will tell you that I did it the right way and I went to the right procedure. I had a great dermatologist from the UK and the reason why I did it is because my body is my business and it's a money maker. And if I have to do it, I say it has to be great and it has to be right. So there is pushback uh, against uh, what uh, Ms. Sadika is saying uh, in Kenya and elsewhere on the economic incentives right, for individuals 
uh, and businesses to tell these products. I thought I'd share the following. This is from a uh, Kenyan film, filmmaker who's talking about uh, the prevalence of skin whitening products uh, in uh, Kenya and some of the reasons uh, for their pervasive use. Sometimes somehow we've come to believe that if you're lighter, especially as a woman, you have an advantage and you're going to get better jobs. And if you watch uh, TV, for example, I asked one of my friends recently to name one female TV presenter who has um, natural hair, and you couldn't find any. You know, so the if you have extensions, you have straightened your hair, and additionally you're lighter, you're more likely to get these jobs where you're getting a lot of exposure on TV, in the media. And that sends a message to, you know, to children, to women, that these are, this is what beauty is. These women are on TV because they're beautiful, and the reason they're beautiful is because they have straightened their hair, and in addition, their skin is lighter. lighter. Yeah. How will this set of attitudes change? How will they change? Hmm. I think there needs to be some sort of a revolution. The problem is there's a lot of money involved in this. If you tell people to stop straining their hair, whether someone agrees with it or not, if I own a salon and you tell my clients to stop straightening their hair, I know that my products are not going to be bought. I know that my, my tongs there have got no use. I know that I'm going to have to let some people go because I'm not going to get as much money as before. Um, so even the people who are selling um, skin bleaching products, they might think it's stupid themselves. Then not everyone who sells these things believes in them. However, if um, they know they're going to lose a huge client base if they don't have these skin bleaching products, they're going to keep doing it for the sake of business. So in the end, your appearance is linked to monetary value, and that's it. And it sounds as though you're saying it's quite hard. just a little uh, from the um, continent, uh, but elsewhere in the diaspora, um, skin whitening is used. And I just took this example from uh, the Dominican Republic. Uh, this involves Sammy Sosa. I don't know if you're familiar with what's happening with his skin tone uh, over time. particular example uh, because I wanted to underscore that men are increasingly being targeted uh, for skin whitening uh, products uh, and this is one illustration of that. Um, also because this raises a serious question of is this a racial performance or is this a color performance, right? Uh, and it's sometimes hard to tease that uh, out. But I really chose this because I'm increasingly thinking about skin color not only as an indicator of race or of class, but also of national origin. Uh, so when you think about uh, Haiti and the Dominican Republic, often the way in which individuals are distinguished in that space is based upon uh, skin tone. And he, um, of course, is uh, Dominican. And then finally, there is 
Um, Brazil, I can't, couldn't cover everything uh, today. In fact, what I tried to do is probably too uh, ambitious. So half of the population in Brazil is either Afro-Brazilian, uh, African-Brazilian, or mixed race. Uh, and indeed, um, Brazil had a concentrated policy of trying to uh, whiten its po population. And it touts itself often, often as being a racial uh, democracy. So individuals there do not identify necessarily uh, by its race. But what I found in my experience on the ground in Brazil, as well as in the research, is that uh, Brazil has one of the most complex uh, color hierarchies on the planet. By some reports, Brazilians use over 130 uh, color classifications to describe themselves. Uh, when you pierce uh, beneath the surface, most people are actually using uh, about six classifications. Because the rule of hypodescent didn't operate the same in Brazil as it did in the United States, the identity of Afro-Brazilians is often determined more by skin color than by ancestry. So the color hierarchy there is real. Uh, and uh, is meaningful. And I just wanted to demonstrate to underscore uh, that color is doing a lot of work uh, within that space with um, this video. There are basically three classification systems uh, in uh, Brazil. There's this census classification, uh, and there's the classification that's used in popular discourse. Uh, and remember I said that 130 uh, reduces to about uh, six. And increasingly, uh, in response to activism, uh, there's just a distinction between black and white uh, to uh, show that there is a stark uh, difference in reality. But to underscore um, that, uh, uh, identification and the way in which one is treated is more about skin color than necessarily about ancestry. I thought I'd share uh, this clip. Uh, these are all individuals from the same family. Meu nome é Simone. Meu nome é Regina. Meu nome é Joacine. Race, color, identity in Brazil, it's complicated. Even within the same family, how you see yourself and how others see you are not always the same thing. Meet Simone's family. They live in a community on the outskirts of Rio de Janeiro. My name is Rodrigo. I'm Isabel. Daniel. Jessica. My name is Sarah. And I have 5 years and my age is 5 years. For me, there are only two races, black or white. Black, logically, I'm not, so I'm white. I'm white. I'm white. Eu me acho preta, as pessoas me acham morena. A minha prima Jéssica é branca, o cabelo dela é liso. Minha mãe é branca e meu pai era negro. Meu pai é branco, a minha mãe é preta. Minha raça é negra. Minha cor mesmo é marrom bombom, mas como não tem isso, eu sou pardo, né? Eu acho que o Ney é negro. Pardo significa ser uma pessoa misturada. A minha filha é branca, embora ela é... É, misturada. Eu sou negra e o pai dela é branco. A minha cor é marrom. Ela é branca pela cor da pele que ela tem. Por que, que a sua cor é marrom? Não sei. Eu acho que a, que a raça muda a minha vida, acho que desde o início, né? Sou ciente da história toda que eu carrego quando me identifico como negro. O peso que isso tem. Minha cor não influ... nunca influenciou e nem influencia em nada. Se você tem um aspecto de branco, né? é, acho que as portas se abrem muito mais facilmente. Uma parte ruim de ser negra é porque você 
é classificado pela sua cor, não pelo que você é. Como você vai se candidatar a uma vaga de emprego, muitas das vezes você tem as mesmas qualificações ou até maiores do que aquela pessoa branca e as pessoas preferem né, escolher aquela pessoa branca. Eu e Simone, minha esposa, nós temos pais preto e branco, mas só que ela tem características maiores da parte presa do que eu, então eu transito mais fácil no meio do povo do que ela. Pelo fato de eu ser negra e as minhas irmãs serem brancas, às vezes quando tinha aquelas brigas, né, às vezes elas me chamavam de neguinha, macaca e aquela coisa da, da briga ali em si, né, mas na hora eu me sentia mal, mas depois passava. Que eu me lembro, eu nunca chamei ela de neguinha nem de macaca. Se eu pudesse, eu não mudaria minha cor. Não, eu não mudaria minha cor. Ah, minha cor é linda, né? Ser negro é lindo. Ok. So, color is clearly uh, doing the work that race does uh, in the United States, uh, in Brazil, but in a much more nuanced, right, uh, fashion. Uh, due to the absence of hyperdescent. So you may say, I'm going to bring this to a close so we'll have time to talk. So what? All right? Why are we talking uh, about uh, this? Well, I think this analysis is important uh, for a number uh, of reasons. One, um, skin color is an important part of people's identities globally, right? It defines how we see ourselves and how others uh, see us. Um, It's also used to support patriarchy and capitalism, and it can lead to uh, discrimination. And indeed, in the United States, what we've seen uh, in the last 10 years is an increase in skin color claims uh, being brought uh, before the Equal Employment Opportunity uh, Commission. So that's one reason to engage uh, in uh, this work. And let me just say, we need uh, much more uh, social science research with regards to some of the uh, implications of skin color as opposed to racial classification, with regards to who we marry, who we date, um, our wages, our incomes, educational attainment, and health outcome. But there are brilliant social scientists uh, and so sociologists, one of whom's in the room, uh, who's doing, who are doing this work, and they're showing, right, uh, that skin color is correlated uh, with um, who you choose as a, 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 a mate um, with wages, with, especially with regards to uh, darker toned black men uh, and immigrant uh, men with levels of educational attainment. Um, and Alice Monkett, for instance, is doing really wonderful work uh, to show that there are health consequences uh, directly related to skin tone uh, differences as well. Uh, we need, uh, and these are some of the other wonderful scholars who are working uh, in this realm, uh, to show us, to tease out uh, specifically some of the consequences of skin color. Beyond that, um, I think it's important to think about uh, skin color in a global context because when I first started doing this work, most of the scholars with whom I engaged thought that skin color was just a subset of racism. But when you look across cultures, uh, you see that skin color has salient, sort of like race, it's social construction, right? Uh, and it has different meanings in different social uh, contexts. And indeed, there's evidence to suggest that some of the meanings uh, may actually uh, predate uh, European uh, imperialism. 
right? And so it's important to understand that in order to tease out uh, some of, here laughing at Eduardo Rondia Silva's uh, hierarchy, in order to understand how uh, skin color hierarchies are created and how they may be uh, dismantled. And then finally, um, we need to understand uh, skin color in order to understand the ways in which our own uh, social hierarchy in the United States may be shifting. And this is an argument that Eduardo Bonilla Silva, uh, a sociologist at Duke, famous for writing Race Without uh, Racism, Racism Without uh, Racist, um, uh, has made. He said, due to the rising number of biracial individuals in the United States, racial categorization may be becoming more difficult, and color may be increasingly used as a substitute uh, for uh, race. With these changing racial demographics and rising fears among whites uh, that the U.S. will soon become a majority-minority country, um, Olivia Silva says that instead of a two-tiered racial hierarchy, what we may end up with is a three-tiered uh, racial hierarchy, something that looks uh, more akin to what we see in certain uh, South American countries uh, like Brazil. And this is a representation of the hierarchy uh, that he uh, sees developing. And note that skin tone does quite a bit of work in distinguishing individuals uh, within uh, this uh, hierarchy. If Bonilla Silva is correct, then what we can anticipate if we see uh, this three-tiered hierarchy developing is a contest viewed by forces both external and within communities of color over where various racialized peoples will fall uh, in this hierarchy. And given its historical and contemporary significance, skin color will likely play uh, an important role in assigning people uh, to a place in this hierarchy. This is, of course, problematic uh, because to the extent that skin color differences lead to intra-group <coughs> divisions, then the possibility of intra-group unity, um, which is a necessary element to fighting white hegemony, is decreased. The consequences are graver, right? Uh, because if, as Bonilla Silva uh, points out, honorary whites grow in size and social importance, the potential exists for this group to be used as a buffer between whites and the collective uh, black. So if honorary whites align with whites and accept whiteness as the legitimate and aspirational norm of a nation, then this group has the potential to muffle opposition or resentment among members of the collective black. My hope is that by understanding and discussing and teasing out the ways in which race language, national origin, caste, and skin color are used to divide people of color both in the United States and internationally. We can thwart these types of outcomes and preserve the possibility of building more effective coalitions. With that, I'll stop. Thank you. white people wanting to look a little bit darker and, and specifically two different um, types of phenomenon. The first one would be, for example, Europeans, like white Europeans. Um, nobody would compliment like a white European because, oh, you're so white, you're so white, but rather like getting tan, like being outdoors or like is the new beauty um, without wanting to look 
uh, you know, non-white, but within the white spectrum. And the second one would be, for example, Kylie Jenner, an apology for mentioning her here. Um, it's such a respectable place. But at the same time, like, are <laughs> trying to look um, African-American um, without, or, or list uh, racially ambiguous uh, without being necessarily um, really that type of um, person. And so I wonder, is this, is this like stemming from privilege? What type of like? How do you how do you categorize this, and how should we behave ourselves, and how should we like think about this? Thank you. I can't tell you how to think. I can only pre present you with um, ideas. But it's worthwhile to look at uh, color within uh, Caucasian communities and how the meaning of color has shifted over time. Uh, so now uh, there is this primacy that's placed on having a tan, but that's not always been the case. That actually changed when transportation uh, systems developed in Europe, which allowed the elite class to actually travel to more desirable uh, vacation destinations where they might uh, secure a tan. And then a tan became an evidence uh, of your uh, elite uh, socioeconomic uh, status. So initially, having a tan was not uh, desired uh, in the same way that having a tan is not desired in certain Asian uh, cultures. But as transportation systems developed, uh, then having a tan became uh, an indicator of your wealth, right? Because now you can travel to these exotic locations and so on uh, and have time for leisure there. Um, so that's how sun tanning has evolved in terms of um, the significance of, of that for um, Caucasians. But note what's happening here, right? Caucasians want um, some, a little bit of color, but they don't want to be categorized uh, as black, so not too much. So there's a fine line between having a tan that's desirable and being too dark and being mistaken, right, uh, as a person of color, a person in the Latinx community or an African-American uh, or an Asian. Um, uh, person, right? Uh, so there's a fine line there in terms of that uh, color uh, performance, right? And the history uh, sort of uh, tells us um, that. I wanted to say something else uh, about the other thing that's that's um, interesting about suntanning is that it's a choice, right? You can choose situationally uh, when uh, you want to have that suntan and when it's not uh, in your benefit to have. Uh, the tan. Uh, so in that way it operates differently uh, than with most individuals and communities of color who can't afford uh, skin whitening products or who uh, don't want to change uh, their skin tone. So uh, there's that elective aspect to it. With regards to uh, Kendall Jenner, I don't, I don't know. Yes, is this the Kardashian? Yeah. Um, yeah, the only one I know is Kim. I'm sorry. Kim's <laughs> haven't done a good job of keeping me uh, contemporary. Um, so she's getting implants and, and things like that too. So I'm doing research right now. I'm just going to answer your question by analogy uh, on um, DNA ancestry tests. Uh, and people using um, DNA ancestry tests to change their racial identification. Um, and what you see is a one-sidedness in the use of these uh, tests. This is going to connect eventually to uh, your question. And that is, white individuals are using these tests uh, to, majority of people don't change, but uh, there is a uh, significant group that do change their uh, racial identification based upon a small percentage of their genes tracing to sub-Saharan Africa. They do it, uh, Wendy Roth, who's a sociologist from the University of Vancouver, uh, strategically. 
right, uh, when it's to uh, their benefit. And, and what she's found uh, are a number of articulations. One, they do it when there's a material, something material to gain, right, uh, to be able to apply for an affirmative action uh, program. Uh, so that's uh, one circumstance. The other circumstance uh, is uh, they do it uh, to facilitate relations with other uh, mm -hmm. groups uh, that they view as different. But the third, and this comes back to uh, the point about uh, uh, gender, is that um, uh, they do it when they think that um, it's going to add a little bit of, don't be disgusted by the terminology I'm about to use in this very hollow space, um, flavor to their identity, right? So they perceive whiteness as being a bland identity, uh, and so they are choosing uh, another identity. So it may be that what's happening here is that she's choosing a certain uh, type of performance, right? Uh, because she thinks it's necessary uh, in the field in which she's operating, or uh, because she thinks it makes her a much more interesting public personality. What's problematic about this is that it's choice. Right? Um, and for most people of color, you don't have that choice to move them in and out of racial uh, categories. Okay. I just wanted to add a kind of on that point that you just made. Um, I don't know if you did research on this, but so I, I in Brazil, um, they have started affirmative action for entrance into universities. And what's been really controversial is this point that you just mentioned. So because there is people can identify you as being, say, like mixed race or pardo in Brazil, but you identify as being white, or you personally identify as being black. When you're applying to a university, the people who are white, because they self-identify as that, understand that because of this new affirmative action measure, they're not gonna identify as being pardo or being black, so they can be accepted into the university based on affirmative action, but because of this ne negative concept of blackness in Brazil, the black individuals will then identify as being part of, so even though the system is meant to benefit them based on this like socialization process, the whites or the pardos are kind of tapping into the affirmative action, while those who would actually benefit feel disinclined to do so. Which shows that there are other interests, right, that one may invoke periodically um, in addition to your primary identity uh, characteristic. And by the way, Ed would tell us whose name was mentioned when I had the slide about the Brazilian classification. Uh, Skeen has commented on that very uh, factor. Thank you so much. This was great. Um, I have a question. Um, so for me, this feels like some. the foundation of it is, of course, not only having a vicinity to whiteness um, gives you access. Um, some part of it being around kind of white comfortability and discomfort with darker skin. Um, but I was intrigued and have experienced how dark skin can impact your economic opportunity. And so my question to you is, is there a way um, that that can be turned on its head a little bit? So. Um, like for instance, for myself, as a dark black woman, I'm very mindful of the angry black woman stereotype, right? Not only am I dark, I like shave my head, like people feel like Angela Davis walking around, like this a lot. So, so, but one of the things is when I, when I got on the job market, I was really mindful to never wear black, blue, or gray to any interviews. I always wore blush 
or tan um, because I felt like it gave, it left a residue of being softer and welcoming, right? Where in some spaces there might be some women who want to proceed and present themselves with this idea of power. But I knew that if I did that, it might almost, that voice might be too loud. Um, and so I was always mindful to do like the blush and pearls and something that, now when I got in there, I could do the red and do the war color and whatever. But, but I felt like there is, if I don't do that, then there's always that space where people can say, well, she's good and she can do the job, but she's not the right fit. It always becomes what I feel like we miss out when there becomes not a rubric, but it's judging on how people are feeling. And I wonder if there's a space for people who are of a darker skin tone to think in terms of that kind of economic opportunity, to think about how we can create space for ourselves, similar to the example of how we can create some space when we know that we're navigating in spaces where white comfortability is so kind of like the foundation of being able to get any kind of access. And I don't know if that's out of the scope of what you're, it's, or if it's a longer conversation. No, 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 it's pertinent to the uh, conversation. What I can tell you is that uh, sociologists um, like William Derry uh, at um, Duke, uh, Joni Hirsch here at Harvard, are uh, looking at the correlation between um, economic well-being and skin color. And Derry has shown that wages are affected, particularly for darker skinned um, uh, black men, right, uh, as a result of skin color. Hirsch is showing that darker toned immigrants from Mexico are, are economically affected. Um, there's research to show that educational attainment uh, is affected based upon uh, skin tone. So that, that uh, research is developing and evolving. And what you're saying is, okay, given that the research is proving uh, what you're saying to be true, not that we necessarily need that sort of validation that it's helpful to have when you're making an argument, um, what can we do? right, uh, to counter that. And one thing that you're suggesting is, and this is open for conversation, uh, is that darker toned people uh, change their identity performance, right, uh, to create a more comfortable interaction uh, with uh, people of color who are darker tones, right? Um, I just question whether that's the normative approach that we want to take as a practical approach, right? Because you, you need a job and you need to be successful in your job. Um, but is there a, another effective um, intervention that will allow you, right, uh, to be you without having to dampen down that fear of darkness, right? Um, and maybe and maybe this is just what academics say, education, right, about the salience of skin tone uh, could do uh, some of that work, right? Uh, educating uh, actors, right, uh, about their unconscious implicit biases when it comes uh, to skin tone uh, may be uh, an effective intervention. The Kenyan filmmaker, right, uh, who was interviewed about uh, the economic um, advantages of engaging in um, the marketing of skin pro uh, products has produced a brilliant, I'm, I'm talking about, I'm using your question as an opportunity to talk about interventions, um, a brilliant short film 
uh, that highlights that can be used in uh, primary education, uh, the salience of skin tone. So um, I understand what you're saying about adjusting identity performances, right, uh, to increase uh, white uh, comfortability, but um, I'd like to see us address this more systematically uh, by changing our approach to education, right? Perhaps by using films as one way of reaching a younger population so that they understand the salience uh, of skin tone and the implicit bias that may uh, be generating uh, discrimination. The law is another me mechanism, uh, but legal claims haven't been successful, even though we're seeing an increase in color uh, uh, claims because we are disaggregating uh, race from color, uh, and courts are beginning to understand what people are experiencing in a workplace based upon color, uh, those claims are not successful, so I'm not sure, or have not been um, largely successful. Intersectionality claims in general, where you're arguing uh, based upon uh, a uh, multi-dimensional identity, are not successful in the law, so I'm not sure that the law uh, is the most effective uh, intervention. And here's what's happened. Well, I'll, I'll save that for another question. I just want to uh, say, just think about the normative position, and maybe we can have another uh, conversation. Uh, in the short term, adjusting your identity performance uh, may be helpful to securing a particular position. But what we really want to do is to undermine uh, system, systems that are in place uh, that perpetuate uh, this hierarchy. Get us through these manufacturers of skin whitening products, right? Uh, try to uh, uh, stop uh, the uh, evolution, the, the continuing buildup uh, in the use of these products, which is, by the way, increasing uh, globally. Um, that may be a systemic uh, intervention. Just to share your, your feedback on films. So yeah. Chris Rock did good hair. Yeah. And that was the beginning of this shift on perming. That's true. And now that whole kind of like hair business, now it has gone to, you know, weave and wigs or what so have you, but the perming industry, and what it did was it put, you know, what it, L'Oreal or Dark and Lovely, whatever they were, on their heads and they had to find natural hair products because people were shifting from getting permed to doing natural hair. So perhaps bringing it to a wider audience through, you know, these interventions you discussed are the way. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And New York City just did their ban on hair discrimination right. yeah. this last week. Yeah. 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 And that's actually a perfect segue to my question, um, which is, so we've seen, so a lot of the talk has been colorism based on skin, but we're seeing colorism move, even with this new natural hair movement, which has been one of the most empowering things to affect the black community or any communities that have non-straight hair. Um, what we're now seeing is a re-hierarchization, I don't know if that's a word, but a, 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 a re-establishing of a hierarchy within hair now, which has already existed, but I feel like it's even becoming more pronounced in this day that people are embracing curls and, and um, non-mainstream ways of wearing their hair. So I'm wondering what, is hierarchy inevitable? Is it always going to happen? Or is there something to do to try to push back and um, from watching that um, reoccur? The social psychologists say that we are um, innately prone to uh, to, to group ourselves and to create hierarchies as humans, right? Uh, and my response to that is, if it's true, I want to uh, abolish the hierarchies that I see, 
right? Uh, and maybe it's like guacamole, uh, something else we can talk about tomorrow, but today I'm focusing on skin color, I'm focusing on hair discrimination and other forms of discrimination, um, and I'm going to do my best to dismantle that. But I want to go to your point. Um, about, by the way, uh, Spike Lee did School Dance, which looked at uh, skin color distinctions, and it didn't have the same salience uh, as Chris Rock's uh, good hair, right? Uh, so maybe Chris Rock operated in a particular moment where the public was more willing to engage in this question of uh, hair, or maybe there's something about skin tone and our commitment to skin tone uh, that's deeper uh, than uh, hair uh, differences, even though hair and skin tone are both indicators, right, among other things uh, of racial classification and class and so on and so forth. But I want to get back to your question, because you raise a really uh, important issue, and that's about the interaction between all of these variables, right? Uh, so note that skin tone interacts with uh, facial, facial features, right, um, as well as hair. A darker tone Beyonce and um, Alicia Keys can get away with wearing their hair in a variety of different uh, styles and not never be perceived right as too black or too threatening. Whereas if you have a darker tone uh, black woman who's wearing her hair uh, naturally. Um, that raises more questions about uh, her acceptability, her desirability uh, in terms of romantic interactions, uh, her performance in the workplace. Is she going to be an angry black woman? So skin color operates uh, in, in tandem with these other uh, variables that are used to create insider and outsider uh, groups. Uh, and I think that's an important insight from what you were uh, in fact saying. And there are hierarchies with hair. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you have examples of successful ways in organ on how organizations have tried to uh, reduce biases and colorism and how they uh, successfully tackle inter intersectionality? Um, I don't think that there, this is the work of the future, right? Because right now we're really trying to understand how colorism colorism operates, what are the values that are ascribed to it, how does it operate independently of race in the United States, uh, how does it operate with gender, with religion, right, uh, with national origin. So until we really understand the way in which it operates, it's hard to come up with effective interventions. There are quite a few organizations now that are doing implicit bias. Uh, training around race, they actually have tools to tease out uh, the way in which race operates in society. I'm not sure that we've provided those entities with the tools, right, uh, to tease out the way in which skin color, this more nuanced, right, um, variable operates uh, in the society and elsewhere. So until we get that tool, those tools, I'm not sure that even those entities are going to be able to create effective interventions. And I think it's going to take tools from a variety of different fields, right? Um, so performing arts, right? You can imagine a Hamilton that uh, tackles directly skin color, right? Uh, films that look at skin color and the way in which um, uh, uh, good hair uh, transformed our understanding or at least engaged us uh, with hair, right? Uh, the law, the law is a very conservative um, intervention. Sorry for those of you who are saying that the law is, is the end all and be all. It's also slow, <laughs> even though it is hard. Um, it, but that may be another uh, effective 
uh, um, mechanism over time as people began to understand more about these nuanced ways in which we differentiate uh, among individuals of the same race? So, yeah. So, thank you for that wonderful, no, thank you for that wonderful presentation. I love that. And I especially liked uh, the introduction with Kimberly Crenshaw, who's wonderful. And I, my question is based on this issue of intersectionality. And in taking an intersectionality framework a step further, you're showing a main effect of lighter skin conferring advantage across males and females, but it seems to do so differentially. So there's also an interaction. And I was wondering if you could speculate or speak to why you think lightness is especially, or, or darkness is especially detrimental to women, or lightness is especially uh, beneficial to women opposed to men. I was really struck and disheartened by you know the fact that India Irie was one of the only pop singers you could find who's dark, but for black males, there are so many dark sex symbols, from Michael B. Jordan to Denzel Washington to even Wesley Snipes, Morris Chestnut, you could go on and on. Um, and so I'm just <laughs> wondering why that is, and it seems to be, and even when I, because I lived in Spain for a while, and in Europe there was a similar sort of phenomenon, so to your question, it doesn't operate in terms of skin color, but it seemed to operate in terms of hair um, color and eye color. Um, and so men tended to prefer blonder women and the women tended to prefer the tall, dark and handsome, dark-haired or brunette men. It's just a casual observation. I don't know if anyone's looked at that. But across different races even, there seems to be this asymmetry between how it affects men and women. And it depends on context uh, as well, right? Um, and it depends on how it interacts with other variables. So let's take uh, the romantic context. Right? Uh, so there it does seem to be uh, the sense that if you have a darker skin tone uh, as a man, right, uh, then you are deemed to be uh, more um, desirable, uh, more sexual, more uh, to have a heightened physicality and so on and so forth. That may co connect to racial stereotypes that are just playing out uh, a little more positively in that uh, domain, right? Uh, and this is all historically based in the United States when you think about uh, black male sexuality and the fear of black male sexuality as time has evolved. Uh, that's with darkness. That seems to be something that is desirable because perhaps it's just a little off limits, right? It's just a little over uh, the line. So you have to think about the historical evolution of black male sexuality and what's happening uh, in terms of darkness, right? And the desirability uh, for darkness. Whereas lighter tone African American men, uh, this is uh, discussed in uh, Mitch uh, Russell's, Catherine Russell's color complex. Uh, don't necessarily have the same sort of um, sexual sexual appeal, right, uh, to women, and this has been uh, frustrating uh, for those men. But then you reverse it. You start thinking about women, and you start thinking about um, uh, who's desirable in terms of um, pop symbols, Beyonce. Right, lighter skin tone, the ability to have the long flowing blonde hair uh, if you want it, right? Um, Cardi B, um, help me out with others. <laughs> I mean, if I don't know who Jenner, uh, Jenner is, Holly Berry, right, as a romantic lead, whereas Ruby Goldberg or someone uh, with her complexion is never going to be uh, a romantic lead. So with men, it's adding this element with black men who are darker of, of, of sexuality, of, of a little bit of danger, right, of physicality, whereas with women, um, it, it's working in the opposite direction, right, in the romantic uh, space. 
there, all the negative stereotypes that you think about uh, with regards to black women um, can be traced to skin tone as well. Aggression, emasculating, um, loud, all of those sorts of stereotypes, uh, you could find some, some, some traction uh, in the skin color uh, discourse. But that's in the romantic space, right? Uh, in the private intimate space. When you shift to the employment space, it's different, right? Uh, so uh, the literature that's evolving shows that with regards to wages, right? Uh, and there's, there's still some, some area where the scholarship needs to be teased out. Uh, black women who are darker are not harmed as much uh, as black men who are darker. So in the economic uh, professional space, right, uh, black men are being harmed uh, perhaps uh, because of that masculinity not being desired uh, and masculinity being attached to darker skin being as desired in that particular space. So it's context-specific uh, context in terms of whether lightness or darkness uh, is um, uh, doing more work with regards to its intersection with gender. Wow. Is that yeah. helpful? Yeah, that's um, very helpful. It's extremely complex. Just to add to what you're saying, uh, there's some recent research out there that's, that argues that race is gendered. And what they're arguing is that blackness is inherently masculine, for example, and Asianness is inherently feminine, yeah. for example. So Asian men suffer that romantic disadvantage relative to Asian women when dating cross-racially, and the opposite is true for black men because masculinity is more desired among men than among women, and so it's the black women who suffer the disadvantage when dating interracially, and so it's this notion that not only do they intersect, but they're sort of imbued, that race is imbued with gender uh, in certain ways. Um, and I can send you some, you know, it's a controversial sort of claim, but it gets to what you're saying about the sexual attraction and how that can be good or bad depending on the contract. Well, I guess to Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality, uh, you can never quite tease out right. all of these variables, right? They're constitutive of each other and create something different. We could go on for it. <laughs> <laughs> but the proof in what you're saying is in rates of exogamy. If you look at uh, who's dating whom interracially, and if you look at black-white uh, interracial uh, romantic liaisons in marriage, uh, the rates of exogamy for black women and white uh, men are low, tremendously low, compared to black men uh, and white women. There are a lot of reasons for that, uh, but may have to do with this sort of uh, race, uh, gender uh, dynamic. Whereas if you look at the Asian community, right, it flips. Well, I think we could go on all day. Yeah, I'm yes, sorry for the long-winded responses. No, they are all fascinating. We, I think we're out of time. I um, want to thank Trina Jones. This has been just fascinating.